We're just going to read a short story today, but packed with power. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall or storm came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him, woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the, w- the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to, he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you, do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus, who are you indeed? That is the question um, that we have been trying to see for ourselves as we've come to your scripture. Lord, I ask that you would give us, as you said, eyes to see. You said last week, whoever has eyes to see, let him see Uh, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, would you give us the eyes to see? Would you give us the eagerness to learn and to hear and to press into you? No matter where we are, whether we've experienced seeming success or a good week, or whether we've suffered setback or, or discouraged, wherever we're at, Lord, I pray that we could lean in now and listen to your voice and listen to your word and learn about who you are. Show us, reveal, Jesus, yourself to us. I believe that the Bible is God speaking now. So, Lord, help us to hear what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today we're going to look, take a look at this short little story um, because it's, it's about the power, well, one thing that it's about is about the power of fearful, fearful situations, which is a part of life. We all have encounters from time to time, or some of us have ongoing encounters, depending on our situation and experiences, with fearful situations that are quite, well, that reveal to us that we've always been out of control. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been through something like that. A lot of times I hear this from friends that have gone through a health scare. And it's not that they said that they, when, they, when it truly hits them, the lesson that it it teaches, and I would say almost universally I hear this from people who have gone through something significant um, health-wise that threatens their life. When, it re- when the lesson really hits home, they end up usually saying something along the lines of, I, I wasn't out of control of this situation. This situation revealed to me how out of control I always was. <laughs> I really perceived before this that I had some idea of control, and now I know that that was, that was illusion. That wasn't really true. But secondly, this passage tells us about the power that Jesus has to overcome situations in the midst of uh, of these situations that we are powerless to control. How Jesus comes in and shows us his supremacy and his real power. This, this, as far as I can tell, this power, Mark 
Mark wrote this account to show us the power of Jesus. So far, we've been studying a lot of his humanity. Uh, Mark's shown us that he gets angry. Mark shows us in this story that Jesus gets sleepy. Um, we know that he experiences joy. We've talked about and seen the things that really get him in passion, that makes him excited, and that, uh, that we've seen some of his kind of pet talks, the things that he always kind of returns, the things that were very important to his heart. We've, we've studied those types of things. But now he's been leading us through this, and now we, with the disciples, hopefully we have it, you can read it in the text, and hopefully you can feel it too, where they go, wait a second, who is Jesus really? You, you notice that they say um, in verse 39, they wake him up, or excuse me, in verse 38, they wake him up and they call him teacher, Rabboni, teacher. We've talked about that, that Jesus was primarily out of the, the 90 or so interactions that people have with Jesus throughout the Gospels, 60-something, they refer to him as a teacher, as a rabbi, and he surely was. We spent a lot of time talking about what that means and what that means for us. But he's, he's at least a rabbi, but he's much more than that, isn't he? And we're, current, we're starting to see the disciples starting to go, oh, maybe we're on to something much bigger than what we, what, we, what we understood, than what we know. So this is a circumstance that is more powerful than the disciples. That's one thing that we're going to learn. Um, they, have, they, they can do nothing about it, and they're very afraid. And I want you to notice Jesus' response to fear this morning to the emotion of fear, and I want you to see how Jesus overcomes that fear. It might be surprising to you. This passage is going to show us that Jesus is more powerful than what people uh, imagined up to this point. It's going to show off and try to describe the power of Jesus Christ. Secondly, this passage is going to show um, that this power is I will say, historic and authentic, and I hope to show you why it's very important for us to understand and why, and why Mark is trying to show us that this is authentic power, it's historic power, it's real, tangible power, not metaphor, not legend or myth, but real power, it really happened. Thirdly, his power is, I'll say, scary power, scarier than the storm. Okay? And finally, we're going to see how his power is the only power that can defeat our fear, that power overcomes fear, okay? Or awe of the right power overcomes fear, and we'll unpack all of that stuff, okay? I think, I think Mark, as best as I can tell, recorded, recorded this to give the reader an idea of how powerful Jesus is. And the reason I say that, I think the anchor point of this text is when the disciples say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They are in awe of his power. A ceiling broke. He went further than what they thought he could. He did more than what they thought he was capable of. He's blowing their minds a little bit here. They're starting to understand that Jesus' Jesus's power has no limits. That's what Mark is trying to get you to get that this Jesus, he's been showing us Jesus snippets all along. Now he's trying to show you his power is limitless. The limits that your brain might have even subconsciously put on the power of Jesus should be starting to give way into a limitless cosmos where you can't see the end of it. 
They're starting to understand that. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing that constrains Jesus. There's nothing that he can't do. And so far, what's interesting here, so we were just talking, I can't remember who, Richard and I were talking about the series, um, help me out, The Chosen. Have you guys seen The Chosen? Well, there is a, a series, so... You have to download the app. You can't go on Netflix or do it that way. There's, it's actually an app that you, you download the chosen and then on whatever kind of smart TV or you can watch it right on the app or your computer, you beam it onto your TV and it's a series taking a long view at all the gospels um, and basically showing Jesus. And I was telling, it's a great series. It's great. You, I really highly recommend it. Um, and now they're in season two. Um, but I was watching this behind the scenes look and the director was saying, we really tr- if we were going to err, you know, we always try to capture the balance of Jesus' deity and humanity. He's fully God, he's fully human. How in the world does anybody capture something like that? We have to give a, a level of grace to anybody who attempts to portray Jesus on the screen. It, I mean, how difficult would that be? And this director said, but we've, in the past, when people have tried to portray him, they've erred on the side of his deity. And understandably so. Nothing wrong with that. But one of the, one of the cons to that is that it's made Jesus feel quite unrelatable, untouchable. Someone that we don't know what to do with, really. We can be in awe and respect him, but we kind of stand at a distance and back away and say, wow. But we don't want to get close. Uh, Dallas, the director and the creator, he said, we wanted to, if we were going to err, we're going to try to get the balance. But if we're going to err, we wanted to err on the human side. And what you have in this erroring, again, you got to give some grace. It's just incredibly hard. In other words, he's saying, we're going to make mess this up. <laughs> but if we are, let's go in this direction. And what you've got is this Jesus who is very relatable, who's very human, that you are you are drawn to him. He's warm. He, you get the sense. The actor did a great job. You get the sense that he gets me. This guy would understand me. He understands it. It's beautiful. And it's what you see in the scriptures. And so far in Mark, you've seen that element of Jesus. Hopefully. We've, we've tried to bring out what Mark is bringing out. And that has been a lot of his humanity. Jesus' urgency coupled with his desire to rest and and have the true meaning of Sabbath, um, coupled with his kind of troublemaking, uh, you know, messing things up on purpose when it comes to the religious systems and the the authorities. All of these things we've gotten to explore. And now, on the backdrop of this humanity, this story comes in. Thud. Thud. See, if Mark from the beginning just tried to highlight Jesus' deity, this would not surprise us. We'd think, well, yeah, of course. We could kind of even just breeze over the story. But as we've been leading up, what's supposed to grab our hearts is we've been dealing with Jesus' very tangible, accessible, human nature, and then all of a sudden, along with the disciples, we should right now go, wait, let's ask the question again. Who is this guy? Who is he really? He's not confined to just one realm. That's what they're saying. That's another. He's not confined to just one realm because what do they say? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're saying he's doing even 
more and in another realm than we ever thought possible. The Sea of Galilee, just to build this out for you here, is uh, 700 feet below sea level. Uh, 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon, which is 9,200 feet above sea level. Um, So within 30 miles, you've got this incredible 9,000-foot elevation change. And what that meant was um, the cold cold air from the tops of the mountains would meet the warm air coming up from the sea, and it would regularly create some storms on the Sea of Galilee that were hard to deal with. And the disciples, almost all of them are professional fishermen that grew up learning the trade and fishing on this particular sea. So this... This, a storm is not surprising for them, but clearly this storm is surprising for them. They, they had, I would, I would imagine, not seen anything like this before. Because here are these seasoned professionals freaking out. They're not saying, we got this, we know what to do. At some point, all of their human resources or the things that they know what to do in a situation like that are not, not working, not working, not working. Jesus is sleeping. So you, assume, you can rightly assume they're trying a whole, lot, a whole lot of different things before it gets to the point of having to wake him up, right? This particular storm was nothing like that. Seriously, this must have been an incredible storm um, because they notice what they don't say. They don't wake him up and say, Master, hey, it's possible. You know, I'm a fisherman. I would give us probably a 70-ish percent chance of dying. Now, they're, if you read it, they're convinced, aren't, aren't they? We're going, Master, don't you care that we're going to die? In other words, this is it. Our mission is over. All of our grand plans for the future are done. We, we've got this interruption, and that is, is that not a great description of life? We've got this interruption that puts everything else on hold and might ruin everything that we thought or we dreamed of. It's done. That's what a, metaphorically, that's what a storm is. That's why the Bible uses them so much to describe life in a fallen world. We go through things. It's normal to go through things that interrupt us. Some things are small, some things are big. COVID was a big, fat, massive interruption to the world. Nothing could keep going the way it was. It interrupted our plans. It interrupted what we thought about life. It interrupted our families. It interrupted everything. You felt the whole world put the brakes on. And everyone had to deal in a very sloppy way, had to deal with this whole thing. And we're still trying to deal with it now. And it's still sloppy because a storm is sloppy by nature. It ruins your protocols. All your plans and and emergency contingency plans don't work anymore. It's that kind of a thing. That's what they're facing. And then Jesus wakes up and does two extremely amazing amazing things here. First, he calms the storm and he makes it look extremely easy. He doesn't break a sweat to do it. He, you know, uh, Nicole and I were watching the other night this new show on Amazon, something about a wheel. I can't remember what the title of it's called. But in it, um, the main actress, Rosamund Pike, she's got these powers. But it takes her a while to charge up. So this army of bad guys is coming, 
and everyone's dying and they're fighting them off and she's like, like charging her batteries while people are, and finally she gives like a bolt of lightning, you know, after she charges it up and she's exhausted afterwards. That's like the extent of her power. Here is, this is not what we're seeing. Jesus wakes up and basically, well, in a literal translation in the Greek, it's two verbs in the Greek, a literal translation is be quiet, stay quiet, and done. You don't see Jesus rolling up his sleeves and you know, getting the stance and, and like calling. You don't see any of that. He wakes up, maybe wipes the sleep from his eyes and goes, be quiet. It's like how you talk to a kid when they're in trouble. <laughs> Sit down, be quiet, and stay there. And <gasps> the universe responds. That's what Mark is talking about here. Verse 39 says, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. This may seem like a redundancy to us, but it's not. The second phrase says completely calm, or in the Greek, you could translate it as mega calm. And the idea is that not only the wind, but also the ocean. Um, Has anybody lived on the coast or been to the coast during a storm? I'm sure a lot of us have. And you'll, I grew up on the Oregon coast, and you'll know that even when the wind dies down, the waves can keep going for a while, hours maybe. The waves can keep crashing. That, you have to understand, that's why he's putting this in here. The waves and the wind responded immediately, and there was an instant calm like glass, a dramatic difference at his command. It took their breath away. And they didn't uh, really even ask him for help. They just were informing him. This shows their limited idea of who Jesus was. They were just informing him that we're going to die. And we're a little upset that you don't even care. In fact, it's a little upsetting and offensive that you could sleep through this. They weren't thinking. (laughs) They were not looking at Jesus sleeping going, wow, what a man of faith. Mm, I wish I could just be. How does he do that? They were thinking, what a jerk. Here we are trying to save everyone's life and this guy doesn't care. And we're out here for him. We're following him. They're a little miffed at Jesus at this point. But Jesus says, be quiet and stay quiet. And the first thing that we see is the wind stop. But that could have been a coincidence. But no, the the ocean stops. It's a dead calm. This is, in other words, Mark is saying... You need to understand this about this human Jesus with hints of his deity. But now Mark's pulling the veil off. He's saying that the mask comes off. He's saying he has incomparable power. The one thing that all ancient religions and cultures agreed on in the first century, the consensus point was that the sea was the one thing that only God or the most powerful God could actually control. The sea was the ultimate symbol in the ancient world and ancient literature, you can go and read about it, as ultimate power and destruction. Something that only the highest power could control. The ocean at full fury is uncontrollable, inexorable power, um, and in their mind, therefore only God could really get a hold of that thing. 
And there was, there was total consensus on this across the board. And here's Jesus exercising the, the kind of power that in their minds only God can exercise. Do you see where their minds are going with this? And notice that Jesus doesn't call on a higher power. Other people that do these types of things, ancient accounts of healers, um, witch doctors, those ty- ancient accounts show them calling on another power. You know, by the power of this, we command or whatever it might be. Jesus does none of that. Jesus just says, basically to a hurricane, sit down, shut up. And it does. Then it does it. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not calling on a higher power because I am power itself. I am power. Anyone else in the whole universe Jesus would say that has power, has it on loan from me. (laughs) I am power. So at this point, you should feel um, somewhat pushed when you're reading the text. And my aim is, just to let you know, that you would read the Bible on on your own and that you would pay attention to how you feel when you're reading it. Because like any book, like any novel, like any author writes in certain ways to get you in certain places, pay attention to that. Mark's probably trying to get you to feel that way, okay? You should be feeling at this point a little bit uh, pushed, for lack of a better term. You ha- in other words, at this point, if you're a rational thinking person, you have to do something with this. And I don't, whether you're a Christian or not, anybody that comes to this text at this point, you, you, if you're a thinking, honest person, you cannot just shut the book and walk away. Something's got to, you've got to do something, you've got to make a decision, right? You can't ignore it because it has major implications. And one of the things that people have been tempted and are tempted to do with passages like this is to say that it's myth, to say that it's legend. It's an exaggeration made up by the founders of Christianity to get people to follow. It's propaganda. That's what this is. And back then, the ancient world, the pre-scientific world, they responded to myths and those types of tales. And the better ones you could tell, those people would gather around and, and would follow. And that's what, this, that's what this is. But interestingly, one of the things that you'll notice about this short, little, tiny little passage that we're in is all the incidental details. There's a ton of incidental details. For example, we're told that this happened at night in verse 35. These are details that don't move the plot, or, don't move the plot along, that really are neither here nor there. They're just there. Then, then there's this very interesting little phrase in verse 36 that Jesus got into the boat, quote, just as he was. Did you notice that? Just as he was. What does that mean? Well, this is actually a reference to the beginning of the chapter when Jesus is teaching a large crowd of people, so large, in fact, that he needs to get into a boat just offshore. They're pressing in around him. He needs some separation. He calls a boat. He gets in the boat and preaches from the boat. And from that story, he just says, let's just go to the other side. So in other words, just as he was is saying he didn't go back to shore to get his stuff. He, He just went. From that preaching, that mobile floating pulpit, he just said, let's just keep going. Another detail. Um, We're also told that when they started out from the Sea of Galilee, that there were a bunch of little other boats along with them. Notice that. 
Again, that does nothing for us. It doesn't advance the plot. It's just there. Then we're told that we're even told that he went to sleep on a cushion, like a mat of some sort or a cushion. Not just that he went to sleep. That would have been sufficient. He went to sleep. But no, he took care to put in. He went to sleep on a cushion. And then on top of that, we're told that it was in the stern or the back of the boat. All of these details. Now, all of these details, believe it or not, are very significant for us. Very significant for us. See, if it wasn't for the details, you might think, you might be prone to believe that this story, like Jesus having power over a storm, you might, be, you might think that it's just a legend because that's how ancient legends were written, without detail. Truly, I'm not making it up. You can go look for yourself. They were written at face value. It seems like a legend until you see that the author took care to put in all the details. My point is that if you were making this up as a legend, which is what you're going to hear in our society, what you're going to hear in, in a post-Christian city like Seattle, this is what you're going to hear, um, why would they add all the details? Why? Why would you write about all the other little boats when that information does not contribute to the story? It doesn't tell us anything. It doesn't move the plot along. There's no meaning, meaning to that point. It's just there and never brought up again. Why does it tell us that Jesus didn't go back to shore before getting into another boat? Why, do, why does it feel like they need to tell us that? Why all the details? And the answer is, they're someone's memories. They're writing it because someone remembers boats. And someone remembered that he went in the back. And someone remembered that he laid down on a cushion. And someone remembered that it was at night and not during the day. Someone remembered all of this. In other words, the, the, the fatal flaw in the cultural understanding of the Bible that this is legend and this is myth is quite simply the gospels do not read like legends or myths they read like eyewitness accounts they read that way they read as eyewitness accounts and all ancient myths are without these details and that's what a lot of people have said in in rebuttal to what I'm saying they say they, they say uh, well details are added to make fiction appear like it's real and I would say, yes, modern fiction is read that way. But the modern fiction writing style did not appear in history until 2,000 years after Mark. And it didn't show up before him either. You can look this up for yourself. I'm not making this up. I've actually studied it. There is, no, there is nothing before Mark that that has a modern type of fiction feel to it and nothing after him until 2,000 years. So what we've got to assume is that Mark somehow stumbled, on upon, stumbled upon a modern writing fictional story and wrote about it as the other gospel, gospel writers did and then no one else picked up on it for another 2,000 years to make it popular. Does that seem plausible? Or do we read, do we read it for, what it, for what, it, what it reads like? It's eyewitness accounting. He slept on a cushion because he did. Also, not to mention, I mean, well, I could just keep going. Um, 
First of all, let me just briefly say this. The gospel accounts, because you need to know this living in a place like Seattle, the gospel accounts were just plainly written way too early to be legends. In other words, they were written within the lifetime of eyewitness events. In other words, and everyone agrees at this point, every reputable scholar, both liberal and conservative, agree that Mark is the, can be the earliest dated book to the time of Jesus himself. We're talking, about, we're talking around 35, 40 A.D., Okay? In other words, it was written so that somebody reading the story could come and say, I was there and that's not what happened. And yet we find none of that in history. None of it. They were just simply written too early to be, to be legends. And that blows it all the way. But most importantly, they are written, they are way too detailed to be legends. And then also, the material that's in them would be countercultural, counterintuitive. In other words, if this was material made to get people to follow, they put in a lot of negative material that would make people not want to follow it. For example, to propose to Jewish people that, that God raised one man from the dead would have been preposterous to that culture. And yet, we've got, we're talking about Jewish people so entrenched in tradition, so in their ways, and yet we have record of thousands of them giving up their religion and, and going on to Christianity, becoming believers in this Jesus Christ, this risen Messiah. Preposterous. To the point where non-Christian historians scratch their heads and go, how did that happen? They added things in there about Jesus, when he rose from the dead, preach, first encountering a woman. In those days, women were considered um, property. Their witness was, was inadmissible in court. If I was making up a religion that I was hoping that people would get onto and follow, why would I add that detail unless it's just what happened? It's just what happened. Why would the founder, one of the main founders of Christianity, Peter, which, by the way, Mark is writing this, we all... I am personally convinced, most people are, that Mark is writing this by interviewing Peter, that Mark was Peter's secretary, and that he's writing, this is Peter's account of Jesus' life. Why would he add so many embarrassing things about Peter? Hey, follow me, I denied Jesus three times. Good sell, bad sell. Hey, follow me, I, you know, I had to be rebuked by the Apostle Paul because I still didn't understand that the gospel was for everybody and I was pretty racist. <laughs> Good self or bad you know, why would you put all these gaffes about yourself unless they were just true? Why, why do I, am I making such a big deal about this? Because here's the thing. If, these, if this power isn't real, historic, authentic power, it cannot help you, and we're wasting our time here this morning. I'm not just sharing this stuff because I'm a nerd and want to show you some fun things in the Bible. I'm sharing this stuff because this is what's given me roots in my faith to stand up in a city like Seattle and hold my ground. Because I know if this is not real, if this power is not authentic, if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, then it 
it's just a fun story. It means not, it, it doesn't help me when the storms come into my life. It does, means nothing for me unless he really does have the power to say, sit down, be quiet, and my storm can be done. It's essential that this really happened. The power of Jesus is not just the power that comes to you when you read an inspiring story. This is power that happened. And Mark and the rest of the gospel writers, they added this detail because they knew that. They wanted you to know, especially Luke. From the very beginning, he's saying, I'm writing all this because I want you to know that this is historic, real event. And it's very important that you know that. See, if it's just legend, then it doesn't matter what you believe. So, in other words, this text is pushy. You have to do something about this. If it's real, what are you going to do with this Jesus? If this actually happened in our history on this planet, on this space, what are we going to do about Jesus? You, ha- you, you cannot, if you're an intellectually honest person, you cannot walk away from something like this. You have to decide. Verse 41 says they were terrified and asked each other, see, look, they've got it. Look, they're, they're pushed. Who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey. This changes everything now. See, this even, this forces the question. This actually happened But if that happened, then who is this and what is it meant for? You only have two options. Either all of this is here, all of of this is here because of an accident and because of blind forces of nature that are acting randomly without intention, without intelligence. That's that's what the naturalistic philosophy will say, that all of this is happening randomly. In other words, without intention, without it meaning to happen, that random chemicals inanimate things are reacting and causing and reacting and causing and reacting and causing and reacting and causing and that's what's going on and therefore the universe has no meaning and when you and, you know and when you cease to exist all of your good things all of your cries for justice all of your pleas of right and wrong and this shouldn't happen none of it matters and when the earth gets a little closer to the sun we all burn out and we cease to exist and none of it matters pointlessness either there's that So either that's the case, or if Jesus is who he says it is, then there is safety. Then there's meaning in life. In fact, everything has meaning. See, if we're here because of an accident, then nothing matters. But if Jesus is real, and he is who he says he is, then there's all the meaning and hope and beauty that we could possibly want. We, that's why we sit together and we have a, that's why we, we can be thankful. The holiday itself makes no sense. Thankful for what? If there's no meaning in life, that means suicide would be just as meaningful as, as choosing life. It doesn't matter. We quickly move into nihilism, the denial of all meaning. It's a philosophy, the naturalistic philosophy or the mechanic, mechanical philosophy is just simply a philosophy that just doesn't work. It's incompatible with life, with functioning. And that's, it, it goes, if, I think nihilists are just living out the naturalistic philosophy to the, to the honest conclusion. 
Okay, let me move on. Notice how scary this is. The disciples are more scared after the storm than before it was calmed. So in other words, in some ways, their problems have just gotten worse. There's not a resolve yet. In fact, Jesus calms the storm, and now they're like, now we've got a bigger problem here. They're in the I mean, you know, they were not expecting this. They did not, you know, we, again, in our minds, we might, we might think of them going to Jesus going, he can fix it. But, you know, we're, we're going to the story with our preconceived Christian ideas at that point. Read, just read what Mark's saying. They go to him to say, hey, don't you care that we're going to die? They didn't say, could you fix this, please? So then he gets up and calms this thing, and they're like, didn't see that one coming. Who is this guy? What they're basically saying is, you, you have gone asleep on us in our hour of greatest need. And here's what Jesus says, and here's what makes him... St- think of Jesus. Jesus... They wake him up, and they essentially say, we're dying and you don't care. And Jesus turns around and doesn't say, hey, you guys, I can understand how you'd feel that way. No, no, no. Jesus calms the storm, and he turns around to his, to his guys, and he says, why were you afraid? He confronts them. How could you be afraid? You have no right to be afraid. Do you feel that confrontation here? What they're saying, what they're basically saying is you've gone to sleep on us in our, great, our hour of greatest need. This should hit a chord in us. You don't care because if you loved us, you wouldn't be letting us go through this, right? Have we all felt that way, right? If you loved us, we wouldn't be going through storms. Love does not equal storms. If you loved us, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be about to sink. If you loved us, we, w- we would not be going through this deadly peril. You're obviously not who we thought you were. You know, fill in the blank, whatever you want to say there. And his response is really interesting. He says, why were you afraid? In other words, Jesus is saying that the way they were thinking about him from the foundation up was all wrong. All wrong. Jesus is saying, you should have known better. I do allow people that I love to go through storms. Those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. They, they can be held in the same space. Suffering and a God who loves you are in the same space in the Bible. I can love somebody and still let them experience pain. And then he said, basically, you have no right to panic. You don't get me. Are you seeing why they're so scared? Because Jesus is, just, is ultimately as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm has so much power and it renders them powerless. They're scared to death. They can't control that. And then they're finding out that Jesus has infinitely more power, but they can't control him either. So what's the difference? And this is where I find people that, that when, when storms happen, when suffering happens, People go, they go this way. They kind of find themselves stuck between a rock and a hard place. They're like, okay, the storm sucks, but then there's God, and I can't, I don't know, he's unpredictable. I don't know what he's going to do. He could allow me to go through worse. As a pastor, I have people that come to me throughout my career and say, if God loved me, how could he, how could he, and he knew all of this was going to happen, how could he have let it happen? 
I don't know if he loves me. And the answer is a hard one to hear. Why are you afraid? Don't you know that those that he loves, he can cause pain and suffering? He will. That just like the cross, he doesn't love you in spite of the suffering, but he loves you and he proves it by suffering. The cross wasn't just um, inevitable. The cross was necessary for something. So how do I know, is there a difference between Jesus and the storm? Absolutely, a big difference. The storms of life, you guys, they don't, the storms of life do not love you. The storms don't, they don't care about you. Jesus, in all of his unpredictable unmanageability, it's driven by a power that loves you and wants what's best for you. And there again are your only two options. You say, well, I don't believe in Jesus. And I would say, fine, then you're at the mercy of the storm. And you have to do something with this. You can say, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, then you're at the mercy of an uncontrollable world, a chaotic world that has no meaning, and you're at the mercy of the storm. Or you say, well, Mike, it's not always stormy. <laughs> Sometimes things, things go good. And I would say, yes, it is. Nature is a storm. Nature is going to wear you down. It wears us down. It's going to destroy you. If you live a long time, it's eventually going to wear you out. Wear you out. Your bodies are going to give out. You're going to die. That's life. That's the ultimate. We're all heading toward the ultimate storm. Death is the storm that we all face. All of us. I mean, the, the statistics are staggering. Like ten out of ten people are dying these days. Nature is violent. It's overwhelming. It's gonna, and you say, all right, but, but, but if I go to Jesus, he's got all this power, and I'm, he's not under my control either. What's the difference? Jesus' power is filled with love for you. That's the difference. Those are our choices. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you knew that I really loved you, then you could have, then you could have been calm through the storm. That's what he's saying. If you knew, this reveals something about your belief, that's, that your belief in me is still incomplete. So that's a lesson for us to learn. When we go through storms and we panic, we freak out, we doubt God, we get angry, there's no shame in that, but it should reveal something to you about your faith. The quality of your faith is revealed through pressure, through fire, through storms. What you really believe will come out during those times. And it's not to shame you, it's to show you your belief is still yet incomplete. There's edges to sharpen on, the, on, uh, on your faith. And it forces you, whether, again, this is why I say whether you're a Christian or not. If you're a Christian, you have not mastered this lesson. Because the storms keep coming. And every time, you're faced with, okay, am I gonna keep trusting? That's why Paul the Apostle said, the just shall live by faith which I, as I've told you, a better translation is trust, I think, rather than faith. Uh, the, the righteous will live by trust. A storm comes, will I keep trusting? Will I keep trusting? Jesus is saying, your premise was wrong from the start. If you, you were saying, if you loved us, you wouldn't let bad things happen. And Jesus is saying, sorry, I can love you and still let bad things happen to you. That is possible. Your premise should have been, if I really know God's love, then I can weather any storm. I can handle anything. 
Jesus is saying, I can let you go through things even, even though that I love you. And if you knew that I loved you, you could get through anything. You'd be indestructible. And that's the point. Uh, we're, we're reading um, Hind's Feet in High Places to Noble right now. And Hannah Hernard came up with this incredible metaphor. She, was, she lived in Israel for a time. She was sitting having tea on her back porch right at the, at, the, at the base of these cliffs, these sheer cliffs. And she would see these hinds, these, these um, mountain goats. I, guess, I, there's a, I think they're called ibex or, or something like that. But they're like mountain goats. And they are able, they've got these hooves that are actually pliable and flexible. And they are able to on a regular basis, not just if they have to, they're able to scale cl sheer cliffs. And it reminded Hannah Hernard, she's sitting there at watching, she's having tea watching these things do this. And she's just, you know, it's amazing. You can look it up on YouTube. I've shown Noble, and it's amazing. Um, and they take their little babies up and down these, these sheer, I'm not talking about something steep. I'm talking about a sheer precipice. And they're walking you know, zigzagging up and down these cliffs. It's, it's phenomenal to watch. And Hannah Hernard was reminded of this Bible verse that says, I will give you hinds feet in high places. I will, that I'm gonna give you these kinds of feet. With, your, with you, I, can, I, can, I have the feet of a deer, David says. And David, she surmises, or she assumes, but maybe even, I think it's, it's, a, it's reasonable to assume that David living in the same area was referring to those very creatures when he, when he might have penned that. And on, in this story, this, this incredible allegory, the good shepherd leads, leads a woman named Much Afraid who is crippled and ugly. She's maimed in her face. She has a crooked mouth, and she's crippled in her, in her feet. The good shepherd, I'm gonna leave you on a, on a journey up a cliff into the high places where my father's kingdom is. And she's a cripple, and she's like, how in the world are you gonna do this? And along the way, he doesn't lead her on the easy path. He doesn't lead her to a secret elevator that just shoots her right up there. He takes her on the hardest paths. And he gives her two companions named Sorrow and Suffering that she quickly learns are actually her friends that get her up there. I mean, Hannah Hernard's brilliant how she put all this together. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and time after time, and the theme that comes up again and again, after every time Much Afraid faces a new challenge, a new seemingly impossible, insurmountable situation, the good shepherd shows up and basically says, can you trust me, Much Afraid? Can you trust me? And she's got all these enemies along the way, enemies named Craven Fear, um, an enemy named Self-Pity and Resentment, and all of these things, they come and they say, to her self-pity comes oh and says oh poor you much afraid if only the good shepherd really understood your plight he wouldn't he must be so cruel to lead you up this up this path and then bitterness comes in and says oh your life's so hard oh you're be angry you should be angry much afraid and craven fear you can't do it you little idiot i mean it's all right there and she's got to hold on to her companion, sorrow and suffering, and she's got to follow the good shepherd through, he leads her away from the mountains at one point into a desert. He leads her all over these places where she wasn't expecting the whole time, can you keep trusting me? Can you keep trusting me? And you know what? She begins to change. And by the time she, reached, she reaches the top, 
She has Heinz feet. She has a new name and a new character. She actually is able to handle her fear. She's transformed from the inside out. It's what we all want, isn't it? Transformation. And we pray for that. We say, God, make me a more patient person. God. Help me stop doing these things that I just wish I could stop doing, but I can't. God, and we go on and on. Help me get financial security, and on and on and on and on it goes. And what we're, when we pray that, what we're imagining in our mind is like the easy button. That he's going to take us to some secret elevator that's going to just shoot us to the top. Or that he's going to, you know, put prayer dust over us, and it's just going to happen. He, but instead he says, okay, call in the storms. And he shakes your foundation, shakes you up. More disappointment. More unexpected dreams and hopes. And our enemies are there. Oh, poor you, you've had such a hard life. If only God, he must be a jerk. Doesn't he understand? He's sleeping in your boat. Doesn't he care? You're going to die. Surely he must know you can't handle this one. And Jesus, every time uh, the good shepherd told much afraid, anytime you need me, you just call, I'll be right there. And of course, it's not as easy as what she would think. It's so hard to get the words out. Jesus helped. But when she did, he'd show up, he'd calm the storm. He, or her, her enemies. Shut up and go, get out of here. And then he would look at much afraid and say, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Why, why are you afraid? I'm here. There's a great uh, poem by John Newton who says this. Just listen to this. I'm going to end with this. His love in times of past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle. Then he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm. John Newton, who knew about being on ships in the middle of a storm, By prayer let me wrestle, then, will, then he will perform. With Christ in the vessel I can smile at the storm. Or like Spurgeon said, God, we don't ask for lighter loads, we ask for stronger backs. God, in all of our lives, he's bringing in storms, and there will be more. I have to tell you that. In fact, it would be cruel of me to say, you'll be fine, as so many churches do. If you had more faith or... I foresee times of blessing and all of that. And there will be times of blessing from the storm. There's one more secret thing that, about this text that I have to tell you. I know we could end there, but that would be wrong too. Um, there's a secret to this passage. This passage sounds suspiciously, and it is quite identical to another story, the story of Jonah. It's identical let me just quickly go through it. Compare it. Both Jesus and Jonah are out in the sea in a, in a boat. 
Both Jesus and Jonah, boats are overtaken by a storm, and the description of the storm in both texts are almost, almost identical. It's minutely different. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep in the storm. The sailors come to the sleepers, and they say, we're perishing. And by the way, the Septuagint, the Greek Hebrew, is the same exact word there in that phrase. So they're in a boat. They're in a storm in a boat. They're asleep in a boat. The sailors come and say, we're about to perish and confront them. And in both stories, the last thing that we read is that the sailors and the disciples, both of them, are more terrified after the storm than they were before. Both. It's an amazing comparison, almost to the point where you might think that Mark is doing this on purpose. In fact, most scholars say it's impossible not to think. They're so similar, he's obviously doing this on purpose. There's one difference Jonah, in the midst of the storm, to the sailors says, there's only one thing that can be done. I have to die in order for you to live. And they toss him. That's the one difference in the story. Or is it? Think with me. Think with me. Think of Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus says, I am the true Jonah. A greater than Jonah is here, Jesus said, and he's referring to himself What does he mean by that? This is what I think he means. He calmed the storm and the wind and the waves and saved the disciples, and that part was easy. No effort. He gets up and says, be still, and it's done. But there's another storm, the ultimate storm, that Jesus will calm, and yet it will only be calmed if he loses his life. It will cost him everything. Jesus says someday he's going to call the ultimate, the the storm of all storms. He's going to destroy destruction. He's going to break brokenness. He's going to kill death, you could say. All storms are going to be gone, and he's going to still all these storms for us. How is he going to do it? He's He's going to take on the storm. The only storm that can really, the only storm that should really scare us is the storm of God's wrath. Right? Didn't Jesus say, hey, don't fear the guy that can kill you. Fear God who can send your soul into hell. The wrath of God. that We deserve to die. That's the ultimate storm. That's the one storm that can shake us, that can really get us. And Jesus says, that's the storm I'm going to come and take on and calm for you because I'm going to bow my head under the waves of that storm. I'm going to take it and it's going to destroy me. It's going to crush me so that it won't crush you. And he did. And on that cross, you guys, when he took on that storm, Jesus was utterly unraveled and destroyed. He was. He was demolished because he paid for our sins on the cross. And if you can grasp that kind of love for you in the ultimate storm, listen to me, you will be able to go through anything. Anything anything that this life throws your way, you'll get through it. And you'll hear the good shepherd say, can you keep trusting me? And because of the storm, you'll notice that your shepherd is not this perfect, he's marred with marks of the storm that he took and you'll be able to say at that point, only at that point, yes, I will keep trusting you. Yes, I will keep trusting you. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm.